If you would, turn in your Bibles to James chapter 3. If you need a copy that is in front of you, the Pew Bible, I believe it's on page 1012. The end of chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4 is also printed on your bulletin insert where you have a little outline there for the sermon. You could take some notes. James is sometimes thought of as the New Testament book of Proverbs. Proverbs in the Old Testament, a book of wisdom and insight, and I think we need to understand a little bit about wisdom biblically. What is biblical wisdom for us to really glean from this passage, which is is full of the word wisdom and full of wisdom for us? Two things we need to understand about wisdom. First, wisdom in Scripture is not simply having knowledge or truth. It's not abstract. It's completely practical. It has to be lived out, applied to life. Truth that is lived out is the essence of biblical wisdom. It's not just about the facts and knowledge. It's truth lived out. That's wisdom. Secondly, wisdom in Scripture is personal. In 1 Corinthians chapter 1 and 2, Paul describes Jesus as the power of God and the wisdom of God, Jesus himself. So if we want wisdom, we'll need to find it in Christ. We're not going to find it anywhere else. It has to be found in Christ, and we must be found in Christ through faith in Him as our Savior, and then we can have the mind of Christ. It's part of living out His character as redeemed, rescued sinners that now demonstrates a life of wisdom. If we're to live in wisdom, we must live in Christ. With that said, follow along as I read James three thirteen through 4, 3. Who is wise and understanding among you? By his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. But if you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast and be false to the truth. This is not the wisdom that comes down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, demonic. For where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there will be disorder in every vile practice." But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, open to reason, full of mercy and good fruits, impartial and sincere. And a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder." You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your own passions. Let's pray. Father, as we come to this book of wisdom, I confess that we fall short of your wisdom and we are in need of your wisdom. We don't come by it naturally in ourselves. So, Lord, make us humble. Humble us to see that you are the fountainhead of all truth and wisdom. And Lord, I pray that you would, by your Spirit, make clear to us what your Word says. You tell us that these spiritual truths are only understood as the Spirit of God makes them clear to us. So we ask that you'd make them clear, but we also would ask for your powerful Holy Spirit to strengthen us to do what we read. 
so that we would not be hearers only, but that we would be doers as well. So, Father, we humbly come before you asking for your way with us. In Jesus' name, amen. So this is the second sermon in a series that I'm calling Christ Commissioned Unity. And for the first sermon, we went to John chapter 17, where Jesus prays that great high priestly prayer in which he prayed that we would be one even as he and the Father are one. The essential unity of the Godhood, Godhood should be reflected in the relationships that we have with other believers. That unity ought to be displayed in our lives. And that unity just can't be random or founded on the wrong thing. We learned that Christ commission unity is Christ-centered, it's truth-grounded, and it turns out to be gospel-proclaiming. Because He prays that the world would see, that they would know that we are His disciples by our love for one another. So, this unity that Christ has commissioned us for and prays for, very specifically for us, ought to be protected, ought to be guarded. But you're not going to be able to guard this unity unless you know what the threats are. And once you know what those threats are, you need to know how to conquer those threats, how to be victorious over those threats. James helps us to understand the threats that are there to the unity that Jesus is praying for. And what you're going to see in this passage, and it's really an axiom of biblical truth, is that the problem is not the problem, the heart is the problem. The real problem lays below the surface. And too often we settle for conflict management and making peace that is only surface level. And we only deal with the circumstances, the people, the whens, and the whats, instead of getting down to the whys. Why are there fights and quarrels among you? And we're going to dive to that level, to the heart level in this passage. Uh, that reality was clear to me again this week. I was listening to a counseling session that a counselor that I'm supervising for certification uh, sent me, and I listened to a number of uh, those and interact with them on the, on the contents, and this particular one was really intense. There was a couple maybe in their late 50s that were just arguing, and from you know, minute one to minute 50, it just started getting louder, more intense, less uh, one person talking and more two people talking over each other and the counselor trying to intervene. And, and it was sounded like he was having to be a, a more of a referee than a counselor until it got to the point where the husband said, that's it, I'm walking out. I've I got to take a break. And, and he leaves and I could hear the office door clunk behind him and he's gone. Now, he came back in a few minutes, blamed the counselor for not um, doing his job, and blamed his wife for what they were arguing about. But it was clear that this fight, this argument, this quarrel, was not about her poor planning of the next visit of their son, her putting down her husband's uh, making a big deal out of something that he thought was important. Those were the circumstances. Those were the wins. Those were the what's. What was clear is that there was a heart problem that needed to be addressed. And that, my friends, is where 
we need to fight the conflicts in our lives. You know, in our Psalm reading today, Psalm 23, the Lord prepares a table for me in the presence of my enemies. You know, we're in the holiday seasons where you may have felt that uh, your table, maybe the Thanksgiving table, was set in the presence of some of your enemies, relations that you haven't seen for a while. I pray that wasn't the case, but I, I'm not um, oblivious to the fact that we live within, with conflict at, in our homes in our relationships, at our workplace. Maybe you're glad to have a, a, a day or two off work so you didn't have to go into that conflict, but you went into another conflict. And these fights and quarrels and arguments are designed by God to reveal what's going on in our hearts and so that we can address them. I want us to look in three ways at the threats to unity. And first, we need to see that the threats to unity arise from where you get your wisdom. Two locations that... James 3 describes uh, wisdom can come from. It can either come from above or from below. And we see that each of these types of wisdom is going to result in a certain um, outcome. So for verses 14 and 15 and 16, you see that this wisdom doesn't come down from above, but it is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. This earthly wisdom, this wisdom from below is contrasted with the wisdom that is from above. The wisdom from above that is found in uh, verse 17. But as we start looking at this wisdom from above, you're going to see seven different characteristics of that wisdom. And there are also seven corresponding characteristics of wisdom that's from below. Here's what I don't want you to hear. Here's a to-do list of if you have all these checked off in your life, then you'll be at peace. Remember, wisdom is about a person. It's about going to Christ. Christ embodied all of the wisdom from above. And he shunned and he uh, pointed out all the wisdom that comes from below is, is wrong. But we can't just see this as a self-help sermon, uh, a way to perfect ourselves so we have less conflict in life. We need to go to Christ for, yes, the example, but yes, for the enabling and the strength and the grace to do what he calls us to do. So let's look at this wisdom that's from above, and it's seen in verse 13 as uh, being demonstrated by his good conduct. Let him show his works in meekness of wisdom. So good conduct and meekness is going to be the result of applying this heavenly wisdom, this wisdom that's from above. Good conduct. It, it, it needs to be evident, and it can't be just words only. It has to be conduct, actions. And those actions are in the meekness of wisdom. That's kind of the overall category of what the result is. And meekness is a really misunderstood word, I believe. I think that we think of it as being uh, demure or not assertive and and actually, what the Bible describes as meekness is a fruit of the Spirit. It is a beatitude that Jesus commends in Matthew 5. The word means power that's under control. It doesn't mean you're powerless. Meekness means you actually have this power that's under control. It it's, brings the picture of a, a horse with all of its strength and speed and power that is restrained by the, by the bit and the bridle. Power that's under control. And so that's where our wisdom shows when it's heavenly if we can keep the power under control, meekness. First of all, it is, in verse 17, the wisdom from above is first, pure. 
Pure has to do with our motives. It has to do with our mindset. And that motive must be to glorify God. It can't be mixed with this earthly wisdom, which is all about me. It's got to be about God. God focused, God glorifying. Our chief end is to glorify God, to enjoy Him forever. And if our life's direction is going to be truly wise, it has to be pure, not mixed. Our motive needs to be for God. And it can't be mixed with my selfish ambition. Secondly, not only to be pure, but also to be peaceable. This is a tough one because Scripture's describing someone who's not argumentative, not petty, not nitpicky or nagging. That's somebody who's peaceable. Now, peaceable and pure go together. You can't have one without the other. In fact, in Aaron's ordination vows, as Tony's and mine, vow number six that we took before you as a congregation was that we promise to be zealous and faithful in the maintaining the truths of the gospel and the purity and peace and unity of the church. Purity and peace. You can't just seek for peace and not have purity. And you can't be so adamant and strong about purity without being peaceable. You need to have those two together. Then gentle. Gentle is this description. Jesus is called gentle. Uh, 1 Timothy 3, elders, one of their qualifications, they must be gentle. This word for gentleness, uh, William Barclay defines as they know how to forgive when strict justice gives him perfect right to condemn. He knows how to make allowances when not to stand up for his rights, and how to temper justice with mercy. That's gentle. That will go a long ways in the heavenly wisdom category towards keeping the conflict and the quarrel and the fight from just escalating. Gentle. Open to reason. Now, when we're in the middle of a fight, I always think that I am eminently reasonable, right? It's the other person that's not being reasonable. If they just saw things my way, then they would understand how unreasonable they're being. Well, I want you to doubt yourself before you doubt the other person. Scrutinize yourself before you scrutinize the other person. This being open to reason is being able to see that everything's not a hill to die on. You don't have to make it into the my way or the highway ultimatum. And you should be willing to yield when necessary. That's open to reason. Full of mercy and good fruits. Those are kind of joined together. Full of mercy and good fruits. You're able to have compassion for people. And I'm not just saying compassion for people that, boy, they have it really hard and something has happened to them that they're suffering. Um, Biblical mercy is when somebody is having it hard and they're suffering because they did something that they shouldn't have done. And instead of saying back there, saying, oh, they're getting what they deserve, you're having compassion and mercy for them because that's you and me apart from the grace of God, that we are in need of mercy. God, be merciful to me. A sinner ought to be our perspective and our attitude. And the person who's pursuing peace is one who extends mercy because they've been given mercy. And they're full of good fruits. You know, it, it's, it's not just words. It's not just platitudes. It is shown in your good fruits. Two more. They are, 
this wisdom from above is impartial. We all have our prejudices. We all have our opinions. But by God's grace, we ought to be not swayed by power, prestige, position. We should not be lumping ourselves in with, well, all the other guys believe this, or treating somebody special because they're family. Or, no, we need to be objective. That's going to lead to peace. And finally, sincere. Sincere is that honesty and transparency. What you see is what you get. You're not a fake. You're the real deal. Okay, so these are the seven that characterize the wisdom that's from above. And again, the outworking of this is you'll see it by the good conduct and the meekness of their wisdom. Good conduct and meekness. Well, the wisdom that's from below, it has some results too. And the results are laid out in verse 16. There will be disorder in every vile practice. Disorder. Dispeace. And so those will result when this earthly wisdom comes, when this wisdom that's from below. It's described as bitter jealousy and selfish ambition. And James doesn't, doesn't say it once, he says it twice. Bitter jealousy, selfish ambition. Jealousy, selfish ambition. That's the biggest problem in the conflict. The biggest problem in the conflict is me because I want what I want when I want it. And I don't yield. And so I want it, I got to have it, is the attitude of earthly wisdom. And he describes this earthly wisdom in verse 15. It doesn't come from above, but it is earthly. So it's not focused on heavenly thoughts. Set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth. Because Christ has hidden you with him. It's not thinking of eternal things. It's thinking about the here and now. What I got to have for me to find pleasure, to find satisfaction, to find peace. Earthly, it is unspiritual. And, and not in the sense that, well, coming to church is a spiritual thing and then everything I do during the week, it's not really spiritual. No, it's in the sense of Galatians where we're told to um, put on the fruit of the, have the fruit of the Spirit and not satisfy the desires of the flesh. It's spiritual versus fleshly. The unspiritual is the fleshly desires and just giving into those. I want it. I got to have it. I'm going to get it. And so ultimately, it's earthly, unspiritual, and James, you took it over the top by calling it demonic. Demonic means of the devil, finding its source in the devil. He, he describes the tongue as that uh, dangerous thing that we have, gets us in a lot of trouble. It's a fire that's set on fire by hell itself, the devil. And so he's not mincing any words or pulling any punches. When we give in to this kind of wisdom, this earthly, unspiritual wisdom, it's actually from the devil. You're playing for the other team. You're running in the wrong direction. You're scoring points for the opposite team. It's not how we were called to live. It also demonstrates itself in, verse 14, boasting. Do not boast. And pride and arrogance always lead to more and more turmoil. 
when you can't yield, when you can't give in, when you have to always be right. You always have to have the last word. That's the pride. That's the boasting that thinks I'm right and I will show you that I'm right from below. Then, finally, false to the truth. The end of verse 14, do not boast and be false to the truth. Well, what does that mean? The truth is, what Jesus is praying for is for all of his disciples to demonstrate that they are his disciples by their love for one another. What you're demonstrating in these fights and quarrels with this earthly wisdom, this demonic wisdom, is totally opposite of what Christ has saved you for. You're actually professing something and acting the opposite. It's hypocrisy. It it, it devalues what you say is your true commitment. I want to be at unity with brothers and sisters in Christ because that's what Christ saved me for, but I'm willing to fight and bite and devour and quarrel. It's false against the truth. And so we need to recognize the source in order to understand the threat. But just understanding the source doesn't get us where we need to be. It doesn't get us to conquering these threats as they arise. We need to then understand that these threats to unity follow the sowing and reaping principles throughout Scripture. We see that principle uh, particularly in Galatians, but here in verse 18, James says, and a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. So in an agrarian culture, they understand you plant something in the ground, it's going to sprout up something that you planted. And so something is going to come out of the soil that ground, of that ground. What you plant is going to define what you're going to reap. It's really simple that way, but it illustrates that the heart is the source of the growth, whatever's going to grow. Look at verse 14. If you have bitter jealousy and selfish ambition in your hearts, then all of this is going to come forth. It's in the heart that we're going to see this battle. It's the heart is the problem. That's where we focus. So we need a change of heart. We need a heart transplant. God promises to give us a heart of flesh and take out the heart of stone. And in order for us to get a heart transplant, let's think of this. If you went to your doctor on Monday and said, look, I would really want a heart transplant. I think that would be good for me to have. He'd say, well, are you having a problem? What's wrong? No, nothing's wrong. I just want a transplant. You'd never get a heart transplant, thankfully, if that doctor is in their right mind. What we acknowledge when we need a change of heart is that our hearts are wrong, that there's sin, that there's wickedness, and we need to repent of that and get a new heart. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me was David's prayer. And so the heart is where the overflow of which the mouth is going to speak. That's Jesus' principle. If you get to the heart, then you're going to affect the behavior. And so um, I've used this illustration before of a water bottle. And if I have a water bottle and I shake it, what happens? Well, water spills out of the bottle. Well, why did water spill out of the bottle? Well, because you shook it. No, let me ask it a different way. Why did water come out of the bottle? Why didn't soda come out of the bottle? Why didn't orange juice? Why didn't milk? 
Well, because water was in the bottle to the, in the first place. You're shaking it, just cause it to come over the edge. Yes. That's the principle of sowing and reaping into the heart. When we work on the heart and the issues in the heart, we will then see everything that springs from it being affected. So, two principles about sowing and reaping. One, we shouldn't be surprised when we see the harvest. Whatever you're planting, that's what you're going to harvest. We have some farmers in our church, and, and they would never go to their planter and fill it with corn, go through the field, and then a month or two later, go back to that field and say, what? Corn? How did this get here? No. They plant it. They're going to harvest it. Now, if they went to that same field that they planted corn in and soybeans sprung up, they'd be like, that's crazy. How could that ever happen? That's impossible. Right. So, why is it in our lives that we sow this earthly, unspiritual wisdom and expect to get peace and harmony in our relationships? It's not going to happen. We're crazy to think that our relationships are going to be fine and dandy if we don't work at them. And that's the other principle is that sowing and reaping, it takes work. In verse 13, by his good conduct, let him show his works in the meekness of wisdom. And later, in verse 18, a harvest of righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. It doesn't happen naturally. You've got to work at it. Now, we are empowered by God's grace and mercy, His love for us, and His Holy Spirit to strengthen us to do this, but don't expect it just to show, don't expect peace to show up in your relationships just because wishful thinking. Sometimes I'll ask people, well, I hear you're having a lot of conflict, I, I, I see that you're, you're coming in, you want some help, what, what have you done about the conflict? Well, we've prayed about it. Now, I believe in the power of prayer. But that's often a cop-out that just says, I really wish there was peace. God, why isn't there peace? And then moving along. You've looked in the mirror and you walk away. You haven't changed. Peace is going to take some work. And it's going to take some rehabbing. And it has to happen on the heart level. Your garden is your heart. So you need to prepare the soil of your heart. You need to till up your heart. You need to plant these seven characteristics of heavenly wisdom so that you can have some heavenly peace show up in your life. We're going to be doing this work and tending this garden until we reach heaven because crop after crop is going to need care and tending and work. And by God's grace, he's called you to this task, but he also strengthens you and enables you for it. He doesn't let you out on your own and say, oh, good luck with that. No, his spirit powerfully works, and Jesus himself is praying that you would have unity in your relationships. He's for you, and he assists us. Finally, if we move ahead to chapter 4 now, what we'll see very clearly is that threats to unity are rooted in worship disorder. What causes quarrels and causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and you do not have. Passions and desires, those are worship words. Those are words that are deeply connected to the way that we were hardwired to be. We were 
made to be worshipers. And in Romans chapter 1, we see how that worship can get exchanged, how it can get turned. Listen to Romans 1, 24 and 25. Therefore, God gave them up in their lusts of their heart to impurity, to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves, because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Worship. Worship of the creature instead of the creator is a turning of what God has intended for us. Um, He gave them up to their lusts. It's the same word here that is desires. It's translated in verse 2. You desire and you do not have. These, These are worship words. And there's a worship disorder when we are worshiping the creation rather than the creator. What does that look like? Well, it looks like you want something that God doesn't want for you. You want something more than what you should want it for. So in his book, The Peacemaker, Ken Sandy helps us to understand the disorder in the heart, the worship disorder that's going on with some, some x-ray questions. He says this, an idol, as we have seen, is any desire that's grown into a consuming demand and it rules our hearts. It is something we think we must have to be happy, fulfilled, or secure. Something other than God. God intended us to seek Him out for security, for safety, for happiness. But we're going after it in the wrong way. Love, fear, and trust. These are words of worship. Jesus commands us to love God, fear God, and trust God alone. Anytime we long for something apart from God, fear something more than God, or trust something other than God to make us happy, fulfilled, or secure, we're engaging in the worship of false gods. Idolatry in action. He goes on to say, as a result, we deserve the judgment and wrath of the true God. How can you discern when a good desire might be turning into a sinful demand? Well, there's a fight that ensues. So I want you to see the fights and quarrels in your life today as God graciously making you aware of something you're idolizing that you ought not to. Somewhere your worship has gotten disordered. What do you want? So these, these x-ray questions would be helpful for you to consider this week. Maybe to consider with your spouse or another Christian friend. First, what am I preoccupied with? What's the first thing on my mind in the morning and the last thing on my mind at night? That's going to point in the direction of whatever you value, whatever you desire. And it could be a worship disorder. Second, how would I complete this statement? If I only blank then I'd be happy, fulfilled, and secure. Happy, fulfilled, and secure if I just had this. Enough money in my 401k. Enough goodwill at my workplace. Enough relationship with my children. Enough respect from my wife. Now, respect, obedience of your children, these aren't bad things in and of themselves, but if you take it to the next level where you will sin in order to get them, where you will manipulate, threaten, scold in order to get that to happen, then it's become too important. He says, what do I want to preserve or to avoid? Where do I put my trust? What do I fear? And then when a certain desire is not met, do I feel frustration, anxiety, resentment, bitterness, anger, or depression? You see, these emotional states of being 
are given by God as the red flag is waving, the check engine light has shown up, it's pointing to something in your heart that's out of whack. You want it too much, and it's causing you anxiety, depression, worry, fear, because you don't got it. How do you get rid of that? How do you exchange that worship of something that doesn't deserve our worship for the worship of the true God? We need to repent of that sinful idolatry. And we need to grow in our love and trust and fear of God. And when we grow in that direction, it pushes out all those other loves that they don't mean as much to you anymore. Or they take their proper place in what you desire. And they're not at the frantic demand, I got to have this, so I'm going to get in a fight with you to get it. Or you're standing in my way of getting it, so I'm going to push you out of the side. Fights and quarrels are an opportunity for us to see how is our heart ordered in worship? Where does God fit in our priorities of worship? He needs first priority. So threats to unity, they abound. They're everywhere. And we need to start by considering where do you get your wisdom from? Heavenly or earthly? Is it from above or from below? And then get into the scriptures so that you can discern which is which and where it's coming from. Saturate your mind with them. And then get that heavenly wisdom that's found in Christ and plant and cultivate that soil. Work it and nurture it, fertilize it, so that then peace can grow out of that. So that a harvest of righteousness can come out of that. And when the fights and quarrels come, and they do, they come in all of our lives, use those as an opportunity to really get to the heart. X-ray your heart and see, Lord, search me and try me. What is the impure way in me? What do I need to repent of? And how do I need to turn back to you? And may God graciously make us aware of these idols that rule us. May we fight against those idolatrous desires instead of fight with one another and thereby demonstrate the unity that Christ has called us to. Let's pray. Father, it's tough for us when we are struggling with uh, these desires that get out of whack, these idols that we erect, and we're often unaware of them and have blinders to them. And Lord, I pray that you would graciously reveal those idols to my heart and to the hearts of my brothers and sisters. And Lord, that the conflicts, the quarrels, and the fighting that we experience, that, that we would grow through them and that we would sow so as to harvest righteousness and peace. Uh, Lord, we know that you are the Prince of Peace. We know that you pray for us to be at peace. And we pray, Lord, that you would richly work in our lives, even this week, to help us in dealing with our hearts and the quarrels and fights among us. In Christ Jesus' name we pray. Amen.